this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Paola Jovene about her really wonderful new book, Tales of Futures Past, Anticipation and the Ends of Literature in Contemporary China. This came out in 2014 with Stanford University Press. Now, this is a book that focuses on 20th and 21st century Chinese literature um, from a perspective that asks about the ways that authors and editors and readers were imagining and dealing with temporality, concepts of the future, both as a destination, as Paula puts it, and as a kind of anticipation. So this is definitely a book that is going to be fascinating for anybody who's interested in contemporary China, and in particular, contemporary Chinese literature. And Paula takes literature to encompass a really wonderfully wide and broad range of kinds of texts that include children's literature, popular science, um, literary journals, letters, science fiction, and lots of other kinds of um, texts and documents. But it's also really for anybody interested in science fiction, in how to think about really creatively temporality and narrative, and in climate and climate change and ideas of fog and haze. Um, And that last topic comes up um, especially clearly, no pun intended, right, Um, in in the last chapter of the book. So it's a really beautiful set of um, investigations of different kinds of literary text and production and practice, both at the level of the text itself and also at the level of institutional practices that simultaneously offers case studies that are each really rich, but that all um, weave together into a comprehensive story about anticipation, um, about what it can mean to talk about talk with and talk through literature, and about China, and about futures. Um, So I will leave it there and let you get to the interview. It really was a pleasure to talk with Paula, and it was a real pleasure to read the book as well. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here to talk with Paula Jovene about her new book, Tales of Futures Past. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Paula, and thanks so much both for making time to talk with me today and for writing such an inspiring and such a stimulating book. It's just great stuff, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it today. Thank you so much for having me, Caroline. Thank you for doing this series of interviews. They're really great. Of course. So, Paula, can you start us off, as is traditional for the New Books in East Asian Studies channel, by just saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work in the field of modern Chinese literature? Oh, yeah. Well, um, you know, when I was, um, well, I grew up in southern Italy, um, in a small island near Naples, and when... um, 
I finished high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew that I want to leave home. And um, so, um, and I knew that I was interested in foreign languages. I had been studying English and German, but somehow to go to college to study English and German seemed um, not so attractive to me. I also felt I really wanted to do something completely new. Um, at the same time, my choices were relatively limited because at that time it wasn't so common. So I wanted to leave home, but at that time it wasn't so common to go very far away from home. So I knew that more or less I had to study in Naples. Um, and in Naples there is um, a university called Istituto Orientale. It's uh, Originally it was a school founded by the Jesuits. And at that time it had a great program in Asian studies and Asian languages and also uh, actually Arabic and also African languages. So um, at the same time, before going to college, um, I went to London for four months to work as a babysitter, actually. And um, in my spare time, I like to hang out in Chinatown. A Chinatown. Uh, <laughs> I like to walk around there. I liked to buy sweets there, and I like to walk around in Chinese supermarkets. <laughs> uh, so, and when I went back home and I had to go to college, the other thing was the you know Bertolucci's last movie came out, just came out. Uh, the last. Uh, um, I mean, Bertolucci's movie, The Last Emperor. Um, and I found that film really compelling. So because of all these reasons, it seemed, okay, I will study Chinese. Um, so very random um, reasons, very contingent and very silly reasons, in fact. Um, at that time, it was very, very popular to study Japanese. That was, you know, in 1980. Eight. It was so Japanese classes were packed. Um, over two hundred students would take first year Japanese, and in Chinese studies, it was only thirty of us. Um, later, I went to China. Um, I wanted to go to China already in nineteen eighty nine, but because of eighty nine, um, I couldn't go. And then um, I went to China in nineteen ninety and. Um, I really enjoyed being there. Um, at that time, though, I still wasn't very clear about what exactly I wanted to study. You know, I took courses in history, art history, philosophy, some literature. It was only after I came back from China, and that was in my third year, uh, actually, no, already fourth year, um, I took a class on contemporary fiction, and I just loved it. It was a class in which we translated uh, texts. Um, we read um, short stories from the early mid-80s that uh, described experiences of young people who had been sent down to the countryside. Um, what I loved about the class was that we spent a lot of time talking about specific word choices Mm -hmm. And the precision um, of my teacher really inspired me because from some word choices, then we could, it, it was inspiring then to talk about broader things, but we didn't talk about broader things in vague or wishy-washy terms, which was a problem I had found in some other classes that didn't have that kind of, you know, precision. So I thought literature was a mean for me to, 
combine some attention to detail um, with the broader context. And that's why I was attracted to literature and that's why I stayed with it. Fantastic. Thank you. That's fascinating. And already um, I can start to hear in the narrative that brought you to this field in the first place, some of the concerns that actually are really beautifully treated in the body of the book itself, right? So for listeners who haven't had a chance to um, read the book yet, this is just a kind of um, sneak peek. We'll be talking about translation, right? And then sort of talking about film and literature and their relationship. So this is actually really nice to hear. So the book itself explores, um, as you put it in the book, how visions of the future have shaped really a range of texts, of genres, and of kinds of editorial practice in Chinese literature from the middle of the 20th century through to the beginning of the 21st century. So how did you come to this topic in particular? Like, and how did you decide to focus a book-length monograph on this topic? Um, you know. Um, the book, in a way, um, has a very long history, and um, it's oddly related to um, my very first ideas when I wanted, to, when I decided actually to uh, do a PhD. Um, I wanted to focus on avant-garde writing, and particularly on um, on the work of Gauffet. Um, this has stayed somehow, is still part of the book, but at that time, um, at that time, it was really more about a specific writer or a specific, um, specific group of writers. Um, and my dissertation, um, was about the discourse of avant-garde, um, in Chinese literature and film. Um, it was only after I finished the dissertation or maybe already when I was, um, when I was, uh, completing it that I felt, um, I, I started to become interested in, um, in this idea of the future, something, um, that broadly, um, shapes um, literature, but also <laughs> I was also interested in, in it in a kind of more existential way, in a way, mm-hmm. uh, in a more personal way. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is, I, I was always was interested in this kind of rather abstract <laughs> problem of of the relationship between time and narrative, um, and and so. After I finished the dissertation, then it took a long time to to rethink the focus of the book and focus less on the avant-garde as an artistic phenomenon or as a literary phenomenon and to connect uh, what I had written and expounded. And in fact, some chapters are really new um, to, to change in a way the, pro- the project also so that it would appeal it would appeal to myself in a more in a way in a more personal way mm-hmm. so it sounds like there were actually some pretty important transformations from the book as instantiated in the form of a dissertation and the book as we're talking about it today right so you, you were taking um, you added some new chapters what were some of the most important ways for you um, that the the shape or the texture of the book changed um, 
Well, um, in uh, in terms of, in practical terms, the 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 dissertation, in fact, uh, also included um, a chapter on documentary filmmaking that um, I decided to take out, and um, because it didn't fit anymore with um, this different concern about temporality, I felt it didn't quite fit. And also the, um, so that was taken out. Then the first, what's now the first chapter in the book on science fiction and the relationship between science and literature, that's completely new. That's research I did after I completed the dissertation. And the last the current last chapter, um, in a way, is related with my original idea about what my dissertation was going to be because it focuses on girlfriend. But um, the book chapter focuses on the third volume of a trilogy, <laughs> whereas the dissertation <laughs> chapter focused was all about the first volume of ah. the trilogy because when I read when I wrote the dissertation the third volume hadn't come out yet so I read it after I finished the dissertation and I found it much more compelling so one problem that I found and I I mean one problem that I found um, writing first the dissertation and then the book is that I've always found it very hard to be to commit to something and stay with it I would commit to something, I would learn all about it, and then I will always have the, before I even write about it, I just want to move on. <laughs> and so that problem, you can see it like, okay, in the dissertation I write about the first volume of a trilogy and in the book about the third. That, that's kind of symptomatic. I'm laughing because so, I totally sympathize with that. And you're, <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language here. That's I completely <laughs> sympathize with that. <laughs> the problem is that then you have so many different parts of yourself that belong to different times mm-hmm. and um, the, then you have to collapse all together because, right, you have to write the book and it needs to be coherent. So it's collapsing different moments of your life um, and, and presenting it as one. So I always find the most challenging thing is like, okay, what's the one sentence description of the book? Because I feel it's this stratification, layers of shifting interests. Uh, but uh, my comfort is that I think that we need to have a plural understanding of my, I mean, literature is such a broad term, right? So in a way, <laughs> okay, I'm losing my train of thought here. I, will, no, I just, no. I just want to say that um, in, in a way, phenomena themselves are complex. And so maybe this multilateral approach to something maybe can be defended somehow, even though it risks um, appearing and not cohesive sometimes. Well, it does. Well, the book, at least from my perspective, does absolutely appear uh, and and feel and read as very cohesive. And um, the kind of thread that brings it together, among other things, is this thread that you lay out at the very beginning of the book. So the central claim of the book, as you articulate it in the introduction, is that 20th century Chinese literature, and we kind of, you know, also will move into the 21st century, but 20th century Chinese literature, as you put it, imaginatively reconfigures 
and is institutionally shaped by two different but related ideas of the future. So one of these ideas of the future is what you call the future as destination. This is, um, in your words, a condition of higher perfection, a time and place that's better than the present. And so in addition to the future as destination, we have the future as anticipation, the expectations that permeate life as it unfolds. So because this both of these threads, but in particular explicitly for me, this idea of anticipation really threads through and ties together the entire book. Could you maybe start us off by introducing us to the importance of this idea for you? Um, so kind of what what is what kind of work for you conceptually in kind of tying together the book does anticipation do? And can you just kind of elucidate the uh, idea of anticipation as you're using it here for our listeners? Um, yeah, so, um, it has really, it is really an idea that has many different, um, many different connotations for me. Um, but the work that it does in particular in relation to Chinese literature is that, um, I think in Chinese literary studies, there has been, and rightly so, um, much, um, emphasis on questions of, um, writers' relationship to the historical past, um, both the remote, the more remote past and both the immediate traumatic past of a century of revolution, basically. And this is obviously very important, but I also wanted to, this sometimes though leads to seeing literature as a kind of record or alternative record of um, events. And sometimes I'm afraid that um, this, of course it is an alternative record and as such as it is a personal record. Um, but um, I think writers also write, literary writing also um, provides um, a different uh, perspective um, about not only what has happened, but also about what might uh, might happen. Um, so I think that the notion of anticipation in that sense gives more importance to the imaginative, um, creative aspects of um, literary writings and the way in which literature can inspire uh, readers to imagine alternative, uh, alternative worlds. Um, and I also think that... Um, my goal also is to, in a way, um, sustain the attention toward Chinese literature as <laughs> literature. And um, I don't mean to say this in terms of literature as literature in the sense of just an aesthetic object, not at all. But um, I always want to remind myself of the kind of specific work that um, literature can do. And in that sense, um, anticipation is part of this specific work that literature can do. Um, in other ways in which anticipation um, does work for me as a concept is that um, I think it can link um, textual and institutional aspects, both of which are really important um, when we approach literature. Uh, but if we privilege institutional aspects, we might downplay 
it's creativity, the creativity of literature. If you, if we, if we, if, and the agency, the creativity and the agency of literature, if we privilege the textual aspects, we might, um, overlook the ways in which, uh, literature is also very much constrained, um, by its context. So I, my hope is that this concept of anticipation helps us navigate the space between agency constraint mm-hmm. because it's a space it's a space of imagination and then at the same time it's historically located okay that's really beautifully put thank you so much paula for um really just articulating that for us so this is something that we're going to see threading through, like I said, the entire book. The first three chapters of the book focus on editors and authors' strategies, right? And you sort of take us into lots of different spaces in which those are um, playing out and being created. And the last two chapters offer close readings of texts that themselves are concerned with, on some level, literature and its uses. And literature and the literary for the purpose of the book really encompasses a lot of different kinds of texts and kinds of different practices. And so on one level, that's another, um, I think, um, accomplishment and another contribution of the book is to really expand what we think we mean when we are talking about literature and the literary. So the first chapter um, that you mentioned a little bit before probably has the best chapter title of any book this year. And this is How I Divorced My Robot Wife, Visionary Futures Between Science and Literature. So this chapter considers contemporary debates and disagreements over what counted as literature, what the boundaries of literature were, and the places of science fiction, popular science writings, and children's literature within that larger um, or under that larger umbrella of literature. So the chapter is going to look at publications in those three genres from the 1950s through the 1980s. And these are publications that haven't yet received a whole lot of scholarly attention, but that were each exploring in some way what you call the technological future of humanity. So we can't talk about all of the stories here. We could honestly spend the next hour just talking about this chapter because there's so much interesting stuff. Um, You have this wonderful discussion of a Tianhan story called Rhapsody of the Ming Tombs Reservoir from 1958. And I want to mention that to signal that for listeners who are particularly interested in the confluence of um, literature and history. This is a really beautiful chapter. You also take us into um, a story called Little Smarty Travels to the Future from 1978. This is the first science fiction book for children that was published at the end of the Cultural Revolution. And there are really interesting things happening in this children's book around labor and manual labor in particular. So as a way to bring us into this chapter, can you introduce us to this story? What's going on with Little Smarty? And how does this for you speak to larger arguments about labor that are happening in this chapter? Um. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, Little Smarty, um, um, is a child who, kind of reporter who travels to the city of the future and, um, the story presents, um, a series of vignettes, uh, uh, in which several aspects of this city of the future are explored, um, um, the city of the future is a perfect inter- integration of city and country, um, factories, um, 
um, a mix music and not noise. Um, labor is completely automated and so on. Um, for me, this story, well, it came out in 78, but um, what I tried to show in the chapter is that actually it was based on a draft that the author had um, published already, not published, had, had written in 62, but then he couldn't publish it. So, and the story, the kind of visions of the future are very similar to some that, some, uh, one um, popular book of, 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 of um, sort of popular science for children had been published in 58. So that the, actually the vision is not so different. So one, one, one goal of, in a way, the chapter is also to show these similarities that between the fifties and and the moment around nineteen seventy-eight. So it's um it's a way to um historicize better this turning point. Um it, it is a turning point, nineteen seventy eight. But um I think it's a turning point that's not yet very well understood and um I was trying to draw elements of, of continuity. Um, the question of turning point, though, is also, I mean, on the one hand, there are these continuities, but what changes, I argue in the chapter that what changes in around 78 is a different, is the evaluation of the, the evaluation or the kind of labor that's um, privileged and Evaluated the, the story. The stories I analyze show quite clearly that, um, uh, whereas the um, most of the science-related uh, narratives um, of the fifties are still mostly privileged manual labor. Uh, from seventy-eight onward, there is. Um, an emphasis on intellectual labor. This is, in a way, well known, but um, the extent to which uh, manual labor is despised um, uh, in some of these stories was surprising to me when I first read them. Uh, in a way, there's one story in which... Um, it's not in it's not in Little Smarties and another story that in, in which really the body of the worker is uh, compared to the body of an animal. And so ideologically, um, for me it was interesting that these so-called science fiction stories, they did they did some quite interesting ideological labor there. That's right. And there's some really cool, um, right along those lines, there's some really cool discussions of three stories by Wei Yahua. Yeah, that exactly. Um, yeah, right. And so this is for science fiction buffs. This is um, definitely have to read this chapter um, because in these stories, there's uh, uh, three stories, I think, Dream of Tender Bliss, I Decided to Divorce My Robot Wife and the Sleepwalker. And you're really showing here that the sort of what's, what's at issue is not the distinction between humans and machines. So much as this divide that you were just describing between manual and kind of intellectual labor and sort of mm -hmm. the ways that this, right, like entailed a certain kind of um, vision of the future and anticipation of that, of that kind of future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So it's really cool. And I would love to talk about um, that chapter for the rest of the discussion, but there are four other beautiful chapters. Um, so let's get to, let's kind of follow this through. So after a chapter that looks at you know, children's literature, popular science and science fiction, you take us into um, chapter two, um, which is a chapter devoted to looking at translation practices and literary translation in particular. So chapter two treats translation as what you call an anticipatory practice. So again, this idea of anticipation um, that comes up in all of these chapters. It does this by situating Chinese socialist literary culture from the 1950s to the 1970s in a kind of global network of literary exchange that spanned Cuba and France and India and the Congo. It's really amazing. And I think um, for me as a reader, this really completely transformed how I understood the um, the networks and the kind of um, conversations where those conversations were happening, who was part of them that were happening in this context. So you take us into um, sort of literary translation as a mode of cultural exchange and the kinds of decisions that enable this to happen by people who are involved in a monthly journal um, called Ewen. That's a main publication devoted to foreign literature in this period the chapter covers. So there's to- there's lots of geographical variety in the kinds of translations that are happening here. Urdu, Turkish, Icelandic authors, English, right? It's, it's crazy broad. Now, one of the things that um, this chapter is doing, and this is where I'd like to ask you um, to talk about this a little bit, you note that if we follow the practices of these translators and the people who are in charge of the uh, this journal um, over this period, the future is not just a time. The future is also a place, right? And the chapter maps particular literary futures onto particular geographies. So can you talk about that a little bit and sort of what is this notion of world literature um, that emerges out of your treatment of what's happening here have to do with this broader notion of futures and anticipation of the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you uh, for asking that. Um, one concern I had, so for some time I was really interested in debates about what is world literature and um, and um, one one goal of the chapter was to think about um, locating this question. That is to say, um, this question is always asked from somewhere, right? And um, so I was trying to think about, okay, what would world literature be at the specific time and place? What would Chinese world literature be? Um, even that question is, is, of course, very, very hard to answer because um, the notion would depend truly on what to which texts readers were exposed. And um, one thing that um, I found out while, while studying this, while studying um, translated literature, indeed from the 50s to the 70s, is that um, yeah, it was a very stratified, I think, reading world, which is to say different readers had access to different, to different texts. Um, overall, though, based on the, um, analysis of Ewen, a journal that then 
changed the name in um, Shijie Wenxue or World Literature in 1958. Based on analysis of this text, this was really the main official translation journal in the People's Republic of China, the main translation journal until 1978 when new journals were started to be published. So based on the analysis of this, I, I, I argue that the the kind of geography of world literature undergoes certain certain shifts um, and that certain areas of the world were looked at as anticipating a certain certain literary forms or certain literary practices um, and yet there were always overlapping geographies. So the argument in a way is also that there were always multiple horizons, um, multiple possibilities um, of um, multiple places were seen as anticipating different notions of literature. Um, it seems um, counterintuitive, but I do think that even at least up to 62. In fact, even areas that politically were considered backward, in fact, they were um, um, literature from these places, like from Europe and also from the United States, they were translated. And there was always a kind of um, ambiguity um, at work. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say always, but often there was a kind of ambiguity at work. What I mean is that some what happened is that literature from France, for instance, was translated even in 1962, where you would think that, uh, you know, only literature from other socialist countries was translated. But in these cases, criticism was a tool, negative criticism was a tool to introduce this literature. Um, and so, in a way, even those literary techniques that were criticized as backward, um, they were in some ways valorized through this uh, through this critique. Thank you so much, and and um, thanks for explicating that, and also thank you for this chapter because this is um, another example of a way in which one of the parts of the book really speaks well beyond the field of, I think, um, Chinese literature, comparative literature, Chinese studies, and also informs the way we think about translation and the kinds of not just discourses around translation that you trace over the 20th century in this chapter. So this is a really interesting set piece for the history of translation, but also I think helps us understand the kind of work that translation is doing and that, um, you know, the kind of curation of translation by editors is also doing in a much larger context. So this is another example of a way in which this is really speaking to a lot of different fields in, a, I think, really, really productive ways. Yeah, I think there is a lot of work that really can still be done, it should be still be done on, on translation as an aspect of literary history and the translators as uh, contributing to um, to a history of literary writing, um, we tend to think of literary history as centered on writers, but uh, we have to always keep in mind that writers are also readers, and writing is also a collaborative effort. And um, this is something that's been said in some 
um, articles, in fact, um, but uh, can be. Um, I'm thinking of um, Kunshuyu's work. Um, uh, she has an article on, uh, um, especially on the translation for internal distribution for restricted distribution distribution that really is, uh, inspired uh, authors, which is to say works that were distributed only to an elite uh, audience, uh, works who were deemed too controversial to be published openly, uh, but that there, which then circulated among some writers, some soon-to-be writers, and affected the literary writing in the 80s. Uh, but how exactly this happens. Actually, there's still a lot to be said about this. So I also try to talk about the mechanisms of uh, publication for restricted distribution. But uh, one area that really needs to be explored more is how actually uh, these texts um, affected writing. Uh, what I do is only mapping a very large field, but um, the details of it really needs, need to be filled. And there's this, a really helpful account of these translations that were made for internal distribution in the chapter. And we're just, for listeners who haven't yet read this, we're not just talking about a few texts. Right? We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of translations mm-hmm. that are circulating. This is a huge potential corpus that's just um, mm-hmm. uh, seems like it would be a wonderful archive to explore a little bit more in exactly the way that you're talking about. Yeah, it would be. It would need to be either you know many projects or a very large collaborative pro- project around the problem. Of, of translation. And speaking of collaboration, um, this is a theme that's actually emphasized not just in part of chapter two on translation when you're talking about um, collaborative translation work that would happen, but also that's emphasized in the next chapter. So chapter three looks at the work of editors of Chinese literary journals in the 1980s by looking very carefully at letters between editors and writers, at memoirs, and at interviews. So this is um, what one of the ways that this is hooking up with a larger discourse about future and anticipation is that you're showing here that the selection processes of these editors are motivated at least in part by expectations of what literature could be, what it ought to be. And this can be understood as a kind of mode of anticipation right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you show in this chapter lots of really, again, fascinating examples. There's lots going on here. You're showing here the ways that editors adopted different kinds of strategies to help Chinese avant-garde fiction emerge. And these are, there are lots of different strategies. You talk about um, timing related strategies, creating models, grouping. One of the particular kinds of strategies that's really fascinating here for me is what you call cultivating youth. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you maybe talk about that a little bit as it kind of opens up the larger arguments that you're making in the chapter? What what um, kind of cultivation of youth, what were the kinds of strategies and mechanisms that were happening around that that um, m- might help us understand the larger argument here? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the question of how do you become an author? Like, how do you become a writer? And um, I think in the 1980s, these processes are particularly interesting because um, there is, in the 1980s in China, much more social fluidity and mobility and people without a university degree, for instance, 
could become writers. One of the writers I talk about used to be a postman and um, he worked in the post office. And then he was really interested in, you know, he read a lot and he starts writing these very, very weird um, stories. This is Sun Gan Lu. And he sends the story to some editors and they take notice of him, but they say, no, well, this kind of writing, it really doesn't make sense. It's too weird. But then when they have um, writing workshops, they, when they had the writing workshop, they invited him and then um, invited him to participate in the workshop and then to submit his story. And then his story started to be published. So there is a kind of proactive role at this time of editors really to um, look for new authors and to see, to look for, you know, to see which ones showed potential and then to sort of train them, um, mostly by inviting them at meetings, workshops. Sometimes it would be a weekend and we would, it would take place at some, some, re, some sort of resort. And, um, so and that that worked, I think, much more in terms of involving um, authors in this kind of um, training, but also social activities in a way, um, less through direct editorial corrections. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting to me that uh, it was more in terms of general advice through letters. Uh, or um, through um, participate through inviting them to participate in these in these workshops, but less through specific instructions on how to revise a story. And actually, this is these are great examples of this larger theme, right? The kinds of um, these mechanics or technologies of training, the social activities, these networks of exchange are mm-hmm. all part of, I think, or can be understood as part of this larger importance of collaboration, right? mm-hmm. how collaborative processes really of all sorts help bring about the emergence of this sort of modern avant-garde uh, or modernist avant-garde fiction that you're talking about. So really this theme of collaboration and working together and what can emerge out of that um, mm-hmm. really, I think, um, comes across uh, really helpfully in this chapter. So as we, thank you. Um, And there's also for listeners um, who are particularly interested, um, really wonderful accounts in this chapter of um, China, a journal devoted to publishing young authors. And also you look closely at the work of Yuhua, um, who was a dentist, right? Before he. Yeah, right. Here's another example. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's great. So we move here. um, When, as we move to chapter four, we move from what you call distant reading to close reading. So as the concerns of the book move more and more into the present, sort of grade more and more into the 21st century, the nature of the chapters also changes, and the last two chapters focus on close readings of texts. Now, like the all the other chapters, the materials explored um, in these two chapters are really wonderfully diverse. So we have fiction, we have scholarly essays, we have speeches, kind of paratextual materials to collections of poetry, um, and tongue poetry, right, um, in the case of chapter four. So this chapter, chapter four, looks closely at short stories and novellas from the late 1980s and the early 1990s by two authors, Wang Meng and Gefei. 
And you've talked a little bit about Gaffey a little bit earlier. Now, among other things for people interested in tongue studies, right, and in the way that we might in the field of literature, um, you know, speak across different temporal contexts and genres, um, one of the things that the chapter does is talk about the importance of the poetry of Tang poet Li Xiangyin to several 20th century writers, including the two that you focus on here. Um, so there's lots of ways in which um, that comes across. And, and we can perhaps talk about that when we talk about um, these two authors in particular. Okay, so one of the um, the parts of the chapter looks closely at Wang Meng's novel, The Strain of Meeting. This is from 1982. But I want to ask you specifically to talk about the other novel <laughs> that you mentioned, which is really, really um, just completely fascinating to me. And this is Gefei's novel, Jinsa, or Brocade Zither, from 1993. So mm-hmm. what I'd like to do is just... Um, you know, hit the ball over to you. Can you, what inspires you about this novel? Can you introduce it for us? And what kind of work is it doing in the larger context of the arguments that you're making here in the chapter? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this is a novella that I actually first translated, um, into Italian, um, uh, in 2000, so very long ago. And the story is uh, a sequence of um, short narratives. Um, each of them has, the protagonist has the same name in each of them. Um, but um, same name, but uh, different different roles, different characters, different time periods. And uh, in each of these stories, the protagonist seems to have reached a point of tranquility or um, great achievement or um, a good point in his life. And then something clicks, something goes completely wrong suddenly and the character dies at the end of each story. And then you go on to the next story and then it's the same name. So it's in in a way you could see this as a story of reincarnations. In the context of the argument of, of the book is a form of anticipation that in fact um, fails to be really forward oriented um, because there is a sort of inevitability of decline. And this is very much part, I think, of, in a way, Gaffey's view about time. Um, and there is a very much emphasis on contingency and um, anxiety about what's about to happen. Um, so it is um, a more um, existentially tormented, I would say, and pessimistic, ultimately, view of what can happen. And there is also this sense of, as I said, uh, circularity, but also of a literary world that um, exists as an alternative reality, but it's also completely self-contained because it's only at the very end of the novella that you, real- that you realize that the first section of the novella, the first story, is actually a story told by the protagonist of the, actually a dream, actually a dream of the protagonist of the last one. So one thing I feel to mention is that 
in a way, each of these stories is told by the protagonist of the first one. So it's the act of storytelling that's the origin of all the story. And it's the act of storytelling that closes back on itself. And the storytelling and, and imagination and dream are all related to one another. Now, in the chapter, one of the really fascinating things for me is that you link this up to the idea of a strange loop, right? So you link right. cursive structures um, and this idea of a strange loop um, in the context of the book Girdle Escher Bach. And, mm-hmm. you know, for any of uh, or for many of us um, uh, listening to this and definitely reading the book, you know, this took me or it took me right back to times, you know, years ago being on planes when I would be carrying a copy of Gertel Escher Bach, you know, it's plane reading and you'd see somebody else across the plane who was also carrying it. And, you know, you kind of recognize someone that was part of your tribe, you know, and I made <laughs> lots of friends that way. You're reading this book too. Okay. Uh-huh. But I digress. So you link up this idea of recursive structures with um, the strange looping of Gertel uh-huh. Escher Bach. So because uh-huh. that's just such a fascinating connection to make. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, what I found is that, well, uh, the idea is that the structure of the novella resembles a strange loop in that it is on the one hand circular, but on the other hand, there's a slight modification and unexpected change that occurs at each section. So it's not entirely that's not at all repetitive. It's on the one hand determined in a circular form and yet completely open to contingency in the ways in which um, the circularity is twisted uh, and opens up to some unexpected event at each turn. Um, historically, this is this can be like a kind of, you know, interpretive claim, but um, what I saw is that actually the the, the, the book was um, actually um, published in China and it had um, a lot of resonance uh, across a uh, wide, wide range of fields. Uh, I mean, in, um, I found articles in psychology, um, medicine um, and um, advertising, they all refer to Gödel Escher Bach, um, which, by the way, was published in 1984. So one can say, and the articles I found are mostly in the nine, late 1980s, the story is in 1993. So any connection like this... Um, in a way, I never asked the author if it's um, justified, if it's true or not. But there seems to be um, some affinity. Um, I was just surprised to see the wide range of fields in which this book seemed to be influential, um, and it also spoke to some cultural. Um, concerns and um, methodological concerns uh, in intellectual debates in the late 1980s, where there was a way to, there was an effort to rethink the model of history, like to rethink um, the vision of history and find a way to rethink history outside of the Marxist framework. So 
strangely enough, Gödel, Escher, Bach also inspired different understandings of um, historical development. Great. Thank you so much. And, and there's also, um, just to kind of go back to Tang studies, right, and Tang poetry here, um, there's a really wonderful moment in the chapter as well where you take us through the way that um, Gefei's novel structurally reproduces or reenacts one of Li Shangyin's poems. Right. So there's this really beautiful attentiveness to the to narrative structuring um, as a kind of form of quotation engagement um, looking back which also um, you know sort of speaks to this temporality that's mm-hmm. a con- that's you know that the book is all about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Gaffey also is a folk is the focus of the next chapter a clean, mm-hmm. a clean place to die <laughs> you really just should write everybody's chapter titles so you, should, <laughs> you know maybe that's a then you can get a little money on the side right you should just write all of our chapter titles Okay, if you do the rest of the writing, <laughs> that's right. Just please write everyone's chapter title. A clean place to die. Okay, so chapter five looks closely at one of the novels in Gaffey's Jiangnan trilogy, and you've, you've um, already briefly introduced this. So this trilogy encompasses three volumes that are set in three moments in modern Chinese history. So there's the 1911 revolution and sort of concepts of utopia that were inspiring revolutionary mo- uh, mo- movements at that time. There's a book that looks at the early 1950s. 50s and a kind of focuses on an idealistic communist cadre, as you describe in the book. And then there's a book on the early 2000s and a critique of capitalism. And so it's the third book that, um, the third volume that the chapter focuses on. So can you introduce the novel for us just for um, kind of briefly for listeners who have never had an opportunity to read Gaffey? Because as you mentioned in the chapter, right, there's an end in the previous chapter, Gaffey's work has received remarkably little attention in English language scholarship, right? So hopefully that's one of the um, things that the book, among other things, will help um, correct. Um, But so for listeners not familiar with this novel, can you give us sort of the basic specs? What's going on in terms of of the larger plot lines of this last volume in the trilogy, um, and w- what's important about that for this idea of anticipation that you're tracing, or the futures that you're tracing throughout the book? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the book, um, the main protagonists are a poet, um, and um, a poet and uh, a woman who then becomes his wife and um, who also then becomes a lawyer. They first meet um, in the late 80s, around 1989, and then uh, uh, lose, they just meet for one night and then they meet again after two years and they get married. So the story follows them somehow from 89 to about, I think, 2000. 2007 and in a way it's the story of a generation um, and it's also a story of uh, urbanization uh, because the context in which they live um, changes so dramatically the story is set um, in Jiannan. I mean in, it's, it's actually set in the uh, in Jiangsu province, and um, it's a fictional representation, but not so fictional, <laughs> of the hometown of Dovey um, himself. And what what's important for me in the book is the attention that it pays indeed to 
pollution and to the consequences of rapid and, uh, in that case, truly um, irresponsible um, economic development. And um, and so in the chapter, I especially uh, focus um, on... Um, on the ways in which um, on the ways in which the novel uh, deals with atmospheric events and particularly with uh, mist and fog mm-hmm. and um, even though in the novel itself you can see that fog only becomes the main topic in the last fourth of the book but um, I think it's um, its most original aspect because um, atmospheric events um, in literature often have a symbolic um, often have a symbolic uh, value. Here also it has a symbolic value but it's also really a material aspect um, of the landscape that raises important questions of responsibility um, and important questions of um, um, the role of individual in what happens in the broader um, context in which he lives. Mm-hmm. So, she lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's there's this really wonderful account that um, kind of speaks back to one of the concerns that you raised in a previous chapter. So in the discussion of the poetry of Li Shangyin mm-hmm. in the previous chapter, you talk a little about a bit about the meaning of. The, the notion of monglong, right? Misty or obscure mm-hmm. and sort of misty, misty in a, in a different way, but in a way that allows readers, and this is one example of many in the book to really thread through from chapter to chapter, um, some concerns that, you know, that really create this really beautiful textured, um, connected picture. Mistiness, obscurity transforms in this chapter into fog as a medium for the manifestation of toxicity. So we have fog and toxicity. And you look at this um, in terms of four manifestations of toxicity, shame, sacrifice, surplus or excess, and crime. Um, so this is a, a, an amazing part of the book. I, I, you know, we could again talk for another hour about this. And honestly, I think this deserves like a book of its own. You, I mean, I would love to read just an entire book about this. So, um, <laughs> so this is a fabulous uh, part of uh, just, just a fabulous part of the um, analysis. Can you speak just kind of very briefly to this connection between fog and toxicity for you? What's um, one of the most important, or what are some of the most important take-home messages to t- for us to take away from this connection between fog and toxicity, to sort of understand the larger, you know, the themes of anticipation and and future looking um, that you're tying up here in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so for me, the question of toxicity, in a way, yeah. So I analyze fog in this novel as both um, and, and ma- a manifestation. I mean, uh, we, um, it's not really fog. In fact, it's um, some kind of haze. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's so even a new term that's been coined. Um, my. Um, so it's kind of 
it's it was a term that was coined uh, around the time of the Olympics to depict the atmospheric conditions of um, of Beijing in, in in moments of scarce visibility and the characters actually if you take them in isolation they they suggest nothing really threatening but um, what's what what actually hovers in the air is is, is pollution right but for me, the, the powerful aspect of this is that it, it both is a manifestation of, of toxicity, but also it really affects you physically in a way that you want to see more clearly. And so it's this dialectic that I'm interested in that is the moment you see something that obscure your sight, right? Or, or more precisely, the, the moment in which your sight is obscured, you want to you want to to see through it, and and so it's that that kind of um, kind of aspiration that um, that that interests me. And another aspect that interests me in the, in terms of fog as as connected to anticipation is that um, it's both um, it's both a not still some kind of you know natural element, but it also is. An element that's very much man-made, human-made, and so it connect it connects different aspects of of temporality. It connects more long-term vision of temporality that is related to the natural world, so to speak, or to the to the non-human world. But then it's already totally meshed with the human. The, the place of humans in it. And so I think that in a way the novel tries to suggest this connection between these two scales, these two temporal scales of anticipation. And it's a connection that we often, um, I think, fail to see or fail to be aware of. Well, Paula, thank you so much um, for taking us through this and for a really beautiful and really, really stimulating book. Um, so there's definitely a ton of other material that we could have talked about, right? There's no way we're going to, we've covered um, all of the fascinating things that are going on in the book. But now that we're at the end, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, not really. I'm kind of blanking out. <laughs> well, I'll say the cover is also pretty awesome. So right. Cover, whoever did that, that's... Um, okay, yes. Yeah. I, I actually is a photographer from Beijing, uh, Fen Yan, and I would like... Yeah, I'm very thankful to him for allowing me to to use this cover. Yes, it's... Um, so you can you can you can look at the there is a reference to his name and actually website on the cover and so i would encourage anyone to go online and look at the rest of his work because it's really inspiring fabulous so now that the book is out and congratulations on the book paula what's next for you what are you currently inspired by and what are you working on so I'm hoping indeed to pursue um, a project um, on uh, politics and poetics of air, yes. actually, yes, because I'm interested in, um, and I would like to look, there is lots of texts that deal with climate modification uh, in China. So I would like to to trace this history of climate modification and then look at climate, how climate plays a, a literary role. But I would like to find ways to do it not only thematically, but also trying to connect certain form of experimentation with certain 
perception of climate. But it's really kind of, um, I don't know if this is possible possible to do. I just found out that experiments in climate quantification in China uh, started in 1958, around the same time in which they started in the United States. Um, so this would be one aspect in which humans interact with the environment. Of course, you can. Mo- we, we are modifying the climate as a kind of conce- as a kind of unwanted consequence of industrial development. But there is also a kind of willful effort at climate modification. And so these are two aspects that I'm interested in. The other aspect is I really want to go back to uh, and continue engaging with documentary film, um, independent documentary film. So I'm working on some small projects related to that. Um, and also I remain many, very interested in uh, and documentary film, I mean, independent documentary films from 1989 onward. And uh, finally, I'm also really interested. So these are actually I should stop here. These are two projects I'd like to pursue, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, best of luck with those projects. Um, and thank you again so much, Paula, for making time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.